we're at verse 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Another version puts it, are indispensable. And those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, on these we bestow greater honour. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually or particularly. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best or the greater gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So this is our brief for this morning, and let's now look at what I have called it. It's really part two of the spiritual community. And of course it does require spirituality for the church to function as it ought. But in this section we are dealing with interdependence and not independence. And we are very much uh, lack of thinking about what I call the collective competence. A compact good and we've got to begin to think more in terms of each other and one another and the whole and not just the part so what we must do we must care in the body for all our members that's what we must do and that goes through from chapter from verse 20 right through to verse 26 Paul is at great pains to establish that they are caring for each other now, when he uses the word care, he is very close to using the word love. As we shall see, the whole concept of caring in this chapter flows into what he means by love in the next chapter. So when he says all the members should have the same care for each other, he really does mean they should all, should all love each other. Now, what he is stating in verses 20 and 21 is the plain necessity. All the members in the body are needed and none are not needed. Now we used to believe that certain parts of the body could be taken away and that it wouldn't make much difference. We don't think too much like that now. 
and medical men would be would be quite horrified if they heard that you could dispense with this bit and this bit and this bit. It's just not true, because when certain parts of the body are not functioning, it creates problems throughout the whole body. Now, the problem that Paul is facing in Corinth is that certain people thought that certain gifts functioned and the other gifts didn't count for anything. So now he wants to establish very clearly in their minds that this is just not true and this is just not right. So he says, there are many members in the one body. That's true. Many members. In fact, the, so the truth is the eye can't say to the hand, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the foot, I have no need of you. You can't imagine yourself walking on your head, can you? It can't be done. But it's an interesting thing. The eye has to communicate with the hand as to what it's to do. You ask every builder, they will tell you that if you haven't got an eye for what you are actually doing, you're going to end up with quite a serious problem. You watch with a child, you give a child a hammer and say, nail in this nail. And you will soon see what I mean, that the eye and the hand have to actually function together as part and parcel. And once the child realises what they should be looking at, they'll hit the nail. But if you're looking at the hammer, you're likely to miss the nail every time. And the same, of course, that the head has to communicate with the foot. And I do know some of my old friends says, my trouble now is that I've got a cross between my head and my foot and I've got to put it in one place and it goes to another. So I understand that age does catch up on us, but in the normal state of affairs, head and foot go together. And they're both needed. Both needed. They are indispensable. Now, there's parts and parcels of the body which we now know are absolutely indispensable. And it would be a very unwise person to say that there's certain bits that you can just dispense with because of the ramifications to all the rest of the body. So, he wants them to tell, he wants to tell them that all the members are needed and all of them have gifts that do function together. He wants to get this kind of corporate feeling running, this corporate caring running, an understanding that we need each other and that we have something to offer to each other. Now, I came early this morning because in the rush I wasn't sure that my handout would be here and I came with other, other provisions. But it was a good experience for me because I realised that there were so many people behind the scenes that are doing things for this church that I wasn't aware of. And I said to myself, my word, if we felt that, 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 that we all haven't got a place, there are some people here who certainly know their place and they're getting on with the job. So I was quite encouraged. I said, hallelujah, there's things going on here. There are. I want you to notice too that the eye and hand have another kind of message in it. 
The lofty eye that can see so far could say to the lower, lower hand, well, you're not worth much. And the head, my word, the head's way up here. And the foot's way down there. You're not worth very much. And I want to say to you that that kind of attitude within the church is not good at all. People that we think are lesser are absolutely essential. What would you and be, you and I be like if both foot, feet were chopped off? We'd be, we wouldn't even hardly hobble, would we? You see all the way they could give us a prosthesis. But you'd soon know that that's not just quite the same. And we've got all kinds of tricks to the trade. What I'm trying to drive into our minds this morning is, don't you think that certain gifts are less than others? That is just not true. And don't you think that certain gifts are less important than others? That's just not true. One of the finest teachers of my youth pointed out to me, a sister one day, in a congregation we were in, and she, he said to me, you know, Jack, that woman's going to be taken right up the front in the throne room of God. And I blinked. I have to be honest, I was a young fella and I blinked. He said, Jack, I mean that. This woman is the heart and soul of this church. She prays and her prayers are being answered. Don't you be taken in by appearances. This assembly I know not too far from here, and it's not matter matter, by the way, in which is the most diverse church I've ever been in in my life. And I marvel that it still holds together. And I am very much aware that there's one person who has prayed for that church incessantly and not only in their generation, but the next generation has carried it on. And this church holds together. Now, what's he making a point of? And I've got it there on the page for you to read. The point made. Supposed weaker members are all necessary. You notice I've got the word supposed weaker members are all necessary. The less honourable we bestow greater honour on. The certain parts of the body that are given more honour than others. Notice too there are certain parts of the body that are not presentable to public gaze and therefore we bestow even more honour on them but my word, I tell you, we would not do without what we have. And we could not do without with what we have. And what the Apostle is saying is, you start to face up to the fact that what you think your tongue speaking as the great trump tra or that you can prophesy as the great trump tra as though these are the two gifts that make the whole church be what it is. And there are lesser gifts that you, if you are wise, will put, you will give greater honour to. 
They're not so conspicuous. They're not so obvious. They're not all the time obtruding. They're not all the time out in your face. They're not in the public eye. But they need the care and the love and the help of other members of the church. Well, our presentable parts don't need any covering, do they? I mean, I, you, I was taught as a child a very naughty little bit of uh, doctoral that went like this, paint, uh, powder and paint makes a woman what she ain't. And it kind of stuck in my mind. Uh, I think it was very naughty and very... It was humorous for, for us as... Uh, and, the, and another one that went with it, old barns do need painting. But normally we live with our faces and we don't mind, although I did think I said to you on one occasion that one of my good friends who has got a kind of a poker face on one occasion came to breakfast and one of my, my cohorts said to him, calling him by name, are you happy? He said, yes, I am. He said, well, don't, don't forget to inform your face. So the visible parts don't need any, any extra titivating, really. But he then says that God gives greater honour to the part that lacks. And my old teacher friend of the past was right. There are people who are not in the public eye who are going to receive much greater honour than those of us who are out in front most of the time. Now, coming further down the chapter, what's all this about? Well, he gives the paramount reason. He says, he says that it is to be no schism in the body. If there's a recognition of all the gifts, if there's a recognition that all have a part to play, if there's a recognition of the whole church, there'll be no room for a schism or a division in the body. Once you start sectionalizing, oh, this gift is the great plum job, or this gift has the prime importance, you are setting up the church for division. You saw it earlier, didn't you? I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of, of Cephas, and some had the demerity to say, and I'm of Christ as though Christ could be brought down to the level of a party leader. Oh yes, we have to face the fact that the church has to care for all the members so there's no opportunity for division or schism. That's why he goes on to say that all the members will have the same care for one another. Now, I know that, this, that we can enter into kind of a victim mentality, particularly when we're older, that no one cares for us. Particularly when we become more isolated. And I have to remind um, my old friends that Jesus said, I will be with you all the days. In fact, I'll be with you every day. And cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. Now then, we've got to face honestly the fact that if we do care for one another, 
If one member suffers, all the members suffer. Now, very good illustration of this. You get a fleck of, of dust in your eye and you can't get it out and it irritates more and more and more until you begin to feel, I've got to get that out. Otherwise, And all the body is starting to join in saying, come on, we've got to get it out, but you can't get it out. And so it begins to water more and more and it gets redder more and more and you try your best to dig it out more and more. And... Uh, and you, if any, by the time you're finished, you're feeling quite ill. And you're feeling quite beside yourself. And what's happened? If one member suffer, all the members suffer. And what does this mean? This means that we will show true empathy and true sympathy with each one of us. Now, I don't agree too much with the statement that says that Christianity is one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. I prefer the one that says one pilgrim is taking another pilgrim along the journey. You and I are pilgrims and we are walking with other pilgrims. I rather like to think what happened on the Emmaus Road should be the experiences of you and I throughout our life that we draw near to people and they are disillusioned and they are disappointed and they're in all kind of disarray. And Jesus draws near to Cleopas and his wife. And what's all this about, he said? He, he, he asked the question and they said, haven't you heard what's happened in Jerusalem? And he asked them to tell him. And they tell him. By this time, he's got their ear because they've been heard. And now he starts talking to them. And along the journey, he's talking to them and he's unfolding the scriptures to them. And he's helping them to understand. And, and when they get to the place where they're going to stay at Emmaus, he breaks the bread and their eyes are opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they rushed back to Jerusalem saying, we have seen the Lord. And did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way? So I like to think that you and I, we are pilgrims and we're journeying on to heaven. And along the way, we're meeting people. And they want to hear from us. And they want help from us. And they don't want you to be a hindrance to them. We all need help. Do you sense that? If you don't feel you need any help, well, I'm just wondering whether you do, do, do live in the church. If you're a member of this church, you certainly do need help. Put up any ha person's hand here who don't think they need any help at all. Well, I would like to see you. And now honestly, you don't think you need any help. Do say so now or forever hold your peace. And if we need help, then we need helpers. Well now, 
if one's rejoicing about the fact that God has honoured them, all the members should rejoice with them. And I like to feel that not only have we Christians that are sympathetic and empathetic, but I like to feel that there's more joy about us, more happiness about us, more that collective sense of well-being that, you know, it's good to be here and I'm so pleased to be in this church. And I do find the company very uh, helpful and I find it very cheerful and I find it really is spurring me on and I feel as though I'm really going places. Now, if you're a true member in this church, I want to tell you that I want to see a bit more laughter and I want to see a bit more joy and I want to see a bit more melody of heart and I want to see a song in you, my brother. And my sister, I want you to be able to look me in the face and say, I did sing to the Lord this morning. Now, sure, some of us aren't very good singers. Uh, I do remember on one occasion staying with my sister-in-law, my wife and I were there, and I'm shaving at the window of a, of a bathroom, and I've got shaving cream all over my face, and out on the street there's a man laying a foot bath. And I'm singing a song which most of you would say was so mournful and so dull and dreary, whatever were you singing that for? But it came out of my early experience before I became a Christian. It goes like this, Lead kindly light amidst the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. And most of you would say it would put the breeze up me. But I want to tell you that man out there exploded and he called out the top of his voice, why are you singing that song? I said, because it means a great deal to me. I said, just a minute, I'll come out and talk with you. And I found that 14 years before he'd been in an assembly of the Lord's people and the last hymn he remembered ever singing was that hymn. And after 14 years, a man has the temerity to sing it out loud through an open window to him working on the street. And I spoke to him, and he came back into the church and died there, for which I give a great deal of thanks to God, because if we sing, it might be contagious. You know that? If there's a song in your heart, it just might be contagious. Has the song stopped in your heart? Are you a singing Christian? When was the last time you sung, you sung to yourself in the shower? When was the last time there was really a song in your heart? We want infectious, contagious Christianity. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice in the Lord always, said the apostle in a prison chain to a soldier. Rejoice in the... Again I say, rejoice! So we want happy Christians. And we want harmonious Christians. And we want a church where people say, I do enjoy going there. And you know the first thing they will say? I do love the singing because the people's heart and soul is in it. 
When Tani was standing up here this morning singing her heart out, I said, that's what we need, Lord. That's what we need. Now, I took my Jehovah's Witness landlady to hear Jeffrey Bourne. He came out of Tibet from a communist prison. We took the town hall in this particular town. We had our best song leader, our best musicians, and we sang. I said to her on the way home, Now, what did you think of tonight? She said, My, can't you brethren sing? Now, I want to say to you that one of the first things people notice when they come into this building to a church service is the quality of the singing. It's your showcase to them. Now, I haven't, I have been enjoying singing songs here that I've never sung in 20, 30 years. It's done me a world of good, I tell you. It's got my, it's got my, the timber up in my voice already. My wife says I'm starting to sing better. So sing on now. Well, now, very quickly. Come now to We Must Note. We Must Note. All members of their gifts are set in order by God. We are the body of Christ, Paul says. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually or really better members particularly. And what he's saying is what I've been saying about the body is true for you because you are the body of Christ and you are particular members in it. So who are we? We're Christians. That means we're Christ ones. And if you tend to think that you can be a Christian and not be in the church, this passage tells you you are very much mistaken. If you're a Christian, you are a member of Christ's church. You are. And none of this, these people, you know, this church, this kind of uh, discussion that I so often have with believers, they talk about the church that they belong to is that, is that they don't belong to it. They talk about these people and these elders and this church. And I'm saying to myself now, Tai Ho, are you a member of the church or aren't you? Do you see yourself as part and parcel of the church? Right? If you do, then you need to be aware that God has set every member in his or her place to function there and to be for God there what he has put them there to be. Well, now he tells them to reckon. Coming on. Reckon on what God has done in the church. Now he actually gives a list of what God has done. God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, healings, helps, administrations and varieties of tongues. Now what's he doing? He's setting a kind of what we might call today a pecking order. Now I know that charismatics do not agree with what I'm saying here now. They just do not agree. They do not believe there is a backing order. I'm still going to say, Peter, is there a first and a second and a third? 
If this is not an order of ranking, I don't know what is. Do you agree? Hallelujah. <laughs> All right. Now, there is a sequence. Surely the apostles would come first. And as I pointed out earlier in the chapter, the nine gifts that Paul actually enunciate, all nine of them were true of him and can be substantiated from other parts of scripture. You'll notice that tongues are given the least place and Gordon Feeney, he, he rises up on his high horse and says, no, 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 no. Of course, he is a thinking charismatic and I give him all credit. Some of his commentaries he's written are very good commentaries. And he's written one on 1 Corinthians, and it's a very good commentary. But you can tell that he's writing with a charismatic bias, very strongly charismatic bias. So he has to disagree with a whole number of other commentators who will not buy what he's saying, that you can't put tongues as the very least because, uh, because, because. And of course Paul puts last what they were putting first. Now, I've been dealing quite a bit with charismatics, I might tell you, and they certainly put tongues at the top of the tree. Make no mistake about it. Am I right, Peter? Now, Peter's coming, coming out of that background, so I'm using him as my kind of uh, confirming rod this morning. I'm not wanting to make an example of you, Peter. I'm just simply saying... And everywhere I go, it's tongues, tongues, and more tongues. And I'm saying, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm finding that they're at the bottom of the heap. And when you talk to me about apostles, because you say you've got to have them if you're going to have tongues, I, I can't find one that matches up with what the qualifications of the New Testament is. Even if you can use the word apostle, as it is used at least once of the apostle of the churches, which simply means the messengers of the churches. But J.B. Phillips was quite right. The twelve was the special messengers. They had qualifications. Had they been eyewitnesses of, of Christ's ministry? Had they been eyewitnesses of his resurrection? Had they been eyewitnesses of his ascension? Had they been called? Had, were they doing the miracles of the apostle? Were they able to say like the apostle Paul did, truly the signs of apostles are wrought among you in signs and wonders and mighty deeds? And when they say, oh, yes, yes, yes. And they've got all kinds of meanderings. And I say, well, now show me one person that you brought to life from death. One. They can't. Oh, you know, they give you cases. And I know Mr. Neville Taylor told me that in the Chad where they have very high temperatures, People would become very sick and they would be absolutely immobilized. And day one would go past and you said he's died, but he hasn't. Day two would go past and they'd say he's died, but he hadn't. And day three had gone past and he's died, but he hadn't. And what happened? On the fourth day, they'd get up and walk around and say there's nothing wrong. Now that's not resurrection. That's simply the body shuts down so it can fight the fever. And then when the fever is now gone and gone out of them, as they said to Jesus about uh, 
the man who lay in the tomb, Mary and, um, and Martha's brother, Lazarus. They said, if he sleeps, he shall recover. And they were working on this three-day basis. But Jesus tells them he's plainly dead. Now, you will notice that in the, in the listing of these gifts, there are more added to what was added, what was given previously. And this should forewarn us that the ninefold gift of the early part of the chapter is not exhaustive. It is reflective of the state of affairs in Corinth. Now, it's possible that Paul is thinking in terms of the wider church when he actually enumerates his list on this occasion. Now, one thing I want to point out, because it must be pointed out, that there are some gifts that he enumerates this time that you and I wouldn't think they were gifts at all. What about helps? Would you classify those among the Spirit's gifts? People who can help. Now, I saw a lot of helpers this morning, and I was, I was absolutely... I was absolutely told a thing or two. People who, uh, who put their hand up and put their hand out to help. Some people who are very practical. So we've got a building committee of people who are very practical and who know what it's about. And there are people who can give help to people in terms of where they're at in illness and people where, who can help and people who are feeling quite beside themselves. We need helpers. So he says the Spirit enables people to help. So helps is part of them. And then, then he's got another word there which goes like it's administrations in the, in the New King James. It really has the idea of an overseer behind it. It was, it was the steering oarsman on the boat. He's a helmsman and he's actually steering the ship. And we've had two helmsmen taken away in this church. Archie Harris and our dear brother Alan King. These were two sheet anchors. They were sheet anchors in this church and they've now been taken. Do we need sheet anchors? We certainly do. Do we need helmsmen? We certainly do. Do we need administrators? We certainly do. Do we need people who have got the gift to be able to administrate in churches get, that get larger and need more infrastructure? But they need wise infrastructure. They need God-given infrastructure so they can more totally function as a church. So I put down on the bottom of page two, note some very ordinary gifts are named as we would tend to see them, but in this we are proved wrong. The very fact that they are in the list, the very fact that God sees the need of the church for them, should forewarn us that what we think are gifts that wouldn't rate, do rate, 
and are part and parcel of the spiritual enablement of any one church. Now, what about the questions now in verses 29 to 30? All commentators are agreed. Every single one I've read, and I've read about 60 of them, by the way, there, there is not the slightest discordant note about the fact that each of the questions requires an emphatic and dogmatic no. You remember, Mr. Prime Minister, the previous Prime Minister was being quizzed by a fellow on television on one occasion, and Jim Bolger cut him short and said, what part of no don't you understand? And I want to tell you that no is a permissible answer. It is quite clearly needed in this passage. Why is he asking the questions? That's the question. Because the real problem is that now we have got people that are saying all Christians should speak in tongues and all Christians should prophesy. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The answer is no. Now, but all have not gone along with this, as I've put in my, my third page. All have not gone along with this plain declaration. They would demand that all, for example, must speak in tongues and must prophesy. This in plain disregard of God's written word and in what Paul has written in this chapter. Now, lest any of you think I'm just too parochial for words, I was actually debating with a leading charismatic on one occasion, not too long ago, and I said, now, my good friend, I want to ask you a question, and I expect a plain answer. Do all speak in tongues? He looked me straight in the eye and said, the biblical answer to that is no, the charismatic answer to that is yes. I said, take my hand. You're the first honest charismatic I've ever met. Well, now come to verse 31. There's much more that could be said, but time is against us. I don't you desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Here we are, yes, good. The best or greater gifts are to be honoured, recognised and used rightly and well by the whole church for its benefit. See, we've got problems, haven't we? There's certain people that say that they want to give a wee word and they're not competent to do so. So I said to one assembly in Sydney, I said, the best way to sort out the men from the boys is all right, you're going to take consecutive, consistent teaching, and you've got the space for your wee word, so you will take so-and-so. And they backed off straight away, because once they were tied to have to study a particular passage and get off their hobby horse, they couldn't do it. And I sorted out the men from the boys and increased that church by 7% in one year. But the, the cowboys, as we call them, who feel that they've cut out for this and they're competent to do that, were sorted out. 
And we've got to face that. That's a question we've got. And those gifts have to be recognised. And let's recognise each gift has a place to fulfil and a role to, to do. Now, this will mean a very different attitude from what's been shown in this church up to this point. They're going to have to begin to rethink their whole appreciation of church life and rethink their appreciation of how the gifts actually function. You see, this church was very rich in gifted, Paul tells us in chapter 1. You come behind in no gift while you await for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So they were very rich in gift, but they were very poor in fruit. And so you have this strange paradox of rich in one and poor in the other. And by the way, gift may put you in a position, only character can keep you there. You've got character flaws, you're going to seem to be missed out. Now, I want to just finish with the closing question. Why chapter 13 between chapter 12 and chapter 14? This is what Paul means by I'm going to show you a more excellent, a better way. Now, what does he also say? Desire earnestly the greater gifts or the better gifts? Or, of course, it may just simply mean you sought out whose gift is what, is whose and make sure that they're functioning there. Now, the learning outcomes very quickly. We must note that the unity of the whole church requires not only elder care, but the care of each for the other. You say no one cares for you, I'm going to ask you another question. Do you care for anyone? Now if you say to me, I've got, I'm so old and dottery, I can hardly look after myself. I've never found an older pe person, unless there's some very real problem, that, that they seem to have run out of tongue. Most old people have a story to tell. And sometimes they've told it that at least 50 times and don't even know they've told it once, but they've still told it. And I want to say, that won't do to say no one cares for me, what about you caring for someone else? Now, two, all members are needed in each local, in fact, the universal church as a whole without exception. You are needed in this church. You are. And if you say, what, what am I to do? Well, pray the prayer that Paul did. Lord, what will you have me to do? Well, you shall go into the house in Straight Street and there we told you more fully what you shall do. It may mean you need to sidle up to the elders and say, what can I do in this church? What can I do? And they're going to have a good look at you. Come to three. Do we feel the pain and shame of loss, of lost or leaving members from our church? Now, my knowledge of assemblies goes for over 60 years, and I find too few churches are bemoaning the fact that certain people have left them. 
and have written, virtually written them off. I well remember in this very city two elders coming to visit me just before we left to go to Australia for 10 years. And someone was talking to me on the other end of the telephone and these two elders were trying their utmost to work out who it was. And eventually it dawned on them. And at that point I put down the phone and said, what, you're still trying to help that person? And I prayed to the Lord because I wanted to say some pretty hard things, but I said, Lord, what shall I say to these two fine elders? And I just smiled and said, you know, we are in the saving business, aren't we? And I said to one, now, are we in the saving business or aren't we? The other, aren't we in the saving business? It diffused the situation, but it was a point worth making. All right? Now, four. Come to four. What are the supposed lesson members? Have we a recognised place for them to function and serve in? You notice I've got the supposed in a quotation. People that you and I don't think are worth very much. By whose qualification? Now, if you haven't got to know them, what are, they, what, what are they worth if you don't know them? And, of course, it's a very onerous, that's why we should pray for our elders. And, by the way, I was noticing, Andrew, that there's no actual part for the elders in the prayer list. There's one assembly that I go to and I always thank God. They pray for their elders publicly. And they make sure they're on the prayer list. Elders need to be prayed for because they are helping members to be what they should be under God. And of course, it's not just that, that that's an elder's responsibility. That is also the responsibility of all of us. And the big question we should be, am I helping her? Am I helping him? Am I being a hindrance? Am I being a narc? That's the question. Now, come to five. What are the sick and the aged? How can they best be helped as members of our church? I hope I never hear from this pulpit what I heard from one or two pulpits in my travels. This church is for the young. The aged can look after themselves. That is not Christian, I can tell you. It is not Christian. And it's not worthy of any church to say that. The older have carried the heat and burden of the day. And they need help. And if they aren't, if you're not helping them, I'm going to tell you a home truth. You show me how you care for the age, and I'll show you how you care for the young. If you can write off one part of your, your church is of no consequence, you can write off all of it. Oh, yes. Now, come to six. Do we see ourselves as active, not passive members of Christ's body, his church? 
Now, can you honestly say as you're sitting there today, I am actively involved in this church. I am a participator, not a spectator. You may be praying, you may be writing, you may be ringing, you may be out. doesn't have one thing you could be doing, but are you an active part of this church? Why am I saying this? Because my whole contention is that if you're not an active part, you aren't actually integrated in the church. You are a spectator. You're going in like you're shopping. You're going in like you go into shops and you start to look and the shop assistant comes up, can I help you? Uh, oh, no, 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 you can't. I'm just looking, thank you. So you just looking. Come to seven now. What about the rank and file, the ordinary gifts? Have their, their God-given place. People that don't seem to account for anything, but are never helped and never encouraged. I'm thinking of a young fellow that came into an assembly where I was, not this one, by the way, and... Um, you know, after some months, I said to him, you know, you could actually contribute something here. Why not give a word of thanks? Why not, why not give a hymn? And so he started to do this. And then I said, you know, you could also give us a scripture. So he got up and he read the most outlandish chapter, I think, possible for the Lord's Supper. But he thought that this is what he should do. And I'm praying furiously because I've set him up for this. And I said, Lord, if he fails, I failed in my work. So I'm praying now, Lord, what is in this chapter that we could actually use in terms of the worship? So uh, he sat down and I immediately stood up and said, we'll stay at the same chapter. And the look of unbelief on the whole congregation, I wish it could have been recorded. And I said, there are two things in this chapter that are very important in terms of our worship this morning. So on we went. And at the end, he shook my hand furiously. He said, wasn't that a good scripture that I read out this morning? But you see, the point of the matter is that he was at least participating. And we need to help people who will make mistakes. Oh, yes. What's the old adage? He that never made a mistake never made anything. Now, come to wait then. Do we recognize that some have gifts that others have not? And that they in turn have gifts we do not have? Now that means we've got to start to, to have a very good pair of biblical spectacles and say, he has, he hasn't, but he has and he hasn't. Every child knows that they can do things better than their brother and, the, and after a while they wake up and say, my brother can do things better than me. Now what does this mean? One little lady is shaking her head because she doesn't think her brother can do things better than her. <laughs> but I can assure you that this is true. This is true. So we need to have a better perspective so that we are helping each other according 
to the gifts that we have. One young woman came to me at Bible school and said, Mr. Boynes, whatever am I going to do? Now, she was one of the most multi-gifted young women I ever met, and even to this day, she stands out in my mind. And I'm praying very, very furiously what to say to this young woman who wants to do something for God and what should she do. Immediately came to my mind the scripture, this one thing I do. And I said to her, now if you only could do one thing, what would you do? She said, I'd be a teacher as quick as that. And I said, that's what you should be. And years later she said to me, that was the wisest decision I ever made because everything that I had could be put into action in teaching. Have you say, whatever can I do? Lord, what will you have me to do? This one thing I do. Now, coming on now. Is there room for competition or conflict over who has and who has not claimed gifts? Now, there are people that claim they have a gift, but don't. And people that claim that they don't have a gift, and they do. And people who make claims about gifts that are quite outrageous and are quite unbiblical. Take, for instance, that all should speak in tongues. That's quite outrageous. Now, come to 10, then. Why does Paul close our chapter pointing at a better way in which God's gifts can be rightly used? Because you and I aren't going to function in this church unless we have a heart of love for Christ and for each other. If we have not a care in the world for what our Lord requires of us or what our Lord desires that we should be to others, we are not going to even begin. I'm going to ask you, do you really love the Lord? And I'm also going to ask you, do you really love the Lord's people? Now if you do, you are certainly going to come to terms with the fact that love does act. Now lastly, why does chapter 13 come between chapters 12 and 14 because that's what they lacked the most they lacked love and so Paul writes this 13th chapter which you're going to come to and he states only too well that if you have and have not love if you do love then you'll love like he loved and if you really and truly do love, then your love will supersede all the gifts because you love as he loves. Now let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, for our time this morning. And we pray that your word will find a place in each of our minds and hearts that you will be glorified as God and that your son will be served out of love for him and for us as people. We pray that your good hand now will be upon each of us 
that we may be the people that you have fitted us to be, you have called us to be, and you want us to be. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.